Welcome to the Empowering Women Podcast. Together, we will hear from ambitious and inspiring career women as they share their stories of success and overcoming career challenges. And now, your host, Mel the Engineer. Episode 12 in Season 2 of the Empowering Women Podcast. I'm your host, Mel the Engineer, and the first thing I want to do is give a huge shout out to everyone who joined us for the Empowering Women in Industry 2020 Virtual Conference. We heard from a variety of leaders at the conference, topics ranging from mentorship to advocacy to embracing and showing up in your power. And a big congratulations to the award nominees and winners. I think we can all appreciate how special we feel when a colleague or friend takes the time to help us get recognition for our work. So it's really special to be nominated. And that's something we can each make a conscious effort to do to support the women around us. So here's a gentle reminder that if you have access to a way to recognize colleagues, whether through an internal company program or trade organization or a future Empowering Women in Industry conference, please consider taking a moment to do so. Filling out the form to nominate someone doesn't take that long and it makes it makes folks feel really good to get that recognition. We're definitely stronger when we support and uplift one another. Okay, a quick housekeeping item. I'm really happy to share that the leader of the Empowering Women in Industry organization, Charlie K. Matthews, has decided to open up a post-conference recorded access. So you could get access to the recorded sessions from the conference at a reduced rate. And to do that, visit empoweringwomeninindustry.com, navigate to the national event, and then click register. All right, let's get to our guest. We're joined today by Barbara Troutline. Barbara Troutline has a PhD in organizational psychology and is the founder and principal of Change Catalysts. Their mission is to catalyze successful and sustainable change by partnering with clients to plan, execute, and enhance organizational team and individual performance. Through their deep expertise in change management, and leadership development. Barbara is the author of Change Intelligence, and incidentally, she was also the keynote speaker at the inaugural 2019 Empowering Women in Industry Conference. So without further ado, I bring you Barbara Troutline. for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Mel. So you are an author, researcher, an entrepreneur, but before we get into your deep expertise, I'd like to talk about your career path a bit. Could you please walk us through just a bit of your early career leading up to your research? Sure, absolutely. Well, I am an organizational psychologist by training. 
And I always loved psychology. And I also liked working in business organizations. And so that's how I found the field of organizational psychology. So I went to, after I completed my bachelor's, I went to the University of Michigan and got my doctorate in organizational psychology there. But when I was there, I got a part-time job at a research and consulting firm. And it was then that I actually started my own company. And so this was back many years ago. I actually started my own company in July of 1989. <laughs> and again, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So it was in the, in the Rust Belt in the Midwest of the United States. And for those of you who might not be as old as me or not students of history, may know that the, at that time in the, in the mid to late 1980s, the Midwest was known as the Rust Belt. And why were we known as the Rust Belt? Well, that's because obviously the Motor City, right? We're near Detroit and the big three auto companies were getting their lunch eaten by foreign competition. So their auto industry was really struggling and that bled into all industries that supplied them. And so I started off my career working in steel mills and my first day on the job as what I call a change leader. I believe we're all change leaders, regardless of tenure, title or role. I was a, a change leader in the steel mill that was in bankruptcy. And so I was part of a consulting team. There was me and others who were there. And our job was to try to help the steel company emerge from bankruptcy. And so there I am at the time, I'm 25 years old, and I'm in a room full of all men. There's about 30 of them, and every one of them, to, almost to a man, had worked in, the, in that same mill their entire careers. So I get up, and I introduce myself, and I talk about how we're going to transform them to high-performance, total-quality, self-managed teams. Woohoo! <laughs> and I look at the back of the room, and a gentleman stands up, the steel worker. He's six foot five. He's like 250 pounds. He's like the Hulk. He stomps right to the middle of the room, right in front of me, and he says, we're steel workers, and we don't listen to girls. <laughs> So that's how I got started in my business. Um, you know, again, working in a um, in a steel mill, and I ended up working in steel mills for. Um, you know, I always always have actually a steel mill client even to this day. But then started working in other heavy industry, refineries, automotive, etc. Um, and I, I pretty much for the first decade of my career worked in pretty much in industrial settings. Branched out since then, but anyway, so that was. That was the start of the early start, the early days of, of my career. Again, simultaneously pursuing a doctorate degree while at least half time or ended up being full time for many years, which is why it took me 10 years to get that degree um, working in, uh, in heavy industrial environments to try to, in the beginning anyway, turn them around to survive. There's so much in, in this uh, story. I mean, when I, when I hear that, it, especially that he said, we don't listen to girls. It's just, just makes me think, you know, there's a immediate refusal to recognize you as a competent adult, uh, but then to put the, put the gender spin on it as well. I mean, when you think back to that first sort of experience, wh what do you think about, about yourself? Like, where you were in that moment trying to come in and help people so different from you make change? 
Yeah, no, great question. Well, um, what happened was what went through my mind was that the um, devil on one shoulder kind of whispered in my ear and said, well, maybe that's why you're in bankruptcy. <laughs> but that would not have won over anyone. Um, so the angel on my other shoulder won out and I held my tongue at least for a moment, because the other part of that type of environment, the type of traditional paternalistic environment is that what happened was the union vice president and the head of HR got up and said, Oh, come on, you know, Joe, whatever his name was, give the girl a break. <laughs> so right away, not only was I confronted like that, I was rescued, right? Not that I needed it. Um, so that is, uh, so, so that, that, that was what was going on. You know, we ended up, partnering together for two years and helping them emerge from bankruptcy and return to solvency. And, um, you know, my role was, you know, I was subcontracting through my mentor at the time. And uh, so he was leading the union and management joint leadership team. And I was facilitating the design teams of the, you know, the operators and the maintenance folks and the engineers on the front lines you know, again, trying to redesign them from traditional top-down autocratic to, you know, again, total quality, high-performance, self-managed teams. And so one of my jokes from the beginning was that, you know, we talked about paradigm shifts back in the day, right? How we have to change our paradigm about how to work together, how a steel mill should be operated, right? How to work cross-functionally, how to work cross-levels, how to work union management, et cetera. And I used to joke that just walking in the room, I was a paradigm shift. <laughs> so, so again, I knew that I was, I was a huge change for, for these folks and they were just, uh, they were just dealing with so much. And so, so again, I kind of, I always knew that it wasn't personal. It wasn't about me. Right. And I always say that one of the biggest change leadership capabilities that we need, well, two of them, one is courage, right. But another one is empathy. Um, a lot of empathy. I knew right from that first day that there was a lot of fear in the room. There was a lot of fear and threat. The steel mill was already in bankruptcy. It was the only job most of them knew, and it was the only game in town practically. So I knew there was a lot of fear in the room. So I had a lot of empathy for the targets of the change. However, I also knew that there was a lot of intimidation, right, and threat in the change leader standing in front of the room, and that was me. So change management, is is that what came up when you were doing graduate work? Is that what led you down this path? No, not at all. Actually, when I started in the field, there was, I don't know that we, we had the term change management. You know, certainly Kurt Lewin back in the 1950s and 60s would talk about change. He came up with, I think, one of the first change models around what is change? Well, we unfreeze we move and then we refreeze. That was one of the most basic models. And there were, you know, it was about the time that I was in graduate school that John Cotter from Harvard and his team uh, did a lot of research and the success and failure rate of organizational changes. And he wrote leading change. And so the Cotter model is very famous. William Bridges in the 90s talked about, well, change is external. It's what happens in our organizations. And what we need to focus on is not just change, but transition, psychological transitions, which is inside us, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there was just a lot of research starting around that time. And that's when just like the field of project management, right, was never a discipline or a field, nor was change management. Um, so I was actually in the field before we even called it change management. I would call myself uh, um, 
an organizational development professional or, um, you know, again, uh, something like that, because that 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 phrase really wasn't really wasn't known. Um, and now, actually, what I talk about is that I help people, teams and organizations lead change. I focus on change leadership versus change management. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. And um, but, the, you know, the focus of a lot of change management is on the models and methods and tools and spreadsheets, you know, kind of trying to manage and control, plan, execute, evaluate change. Um, and I think a lot of the reason we have such a high failure rate of change is that we really need to focus on change leadership. So starting with ourselves as leaders, build, you know, understanding how to build collaborative change partnerships with other change leaders, uh, building change intelligent teams and organizations. So that's, that's one of the reasons I created my change intelligence approach to, was to fill that gap. All right. So let's talk about that in a little more detail. What is change leadership sort of 101 to you and where does change intelligence fit into that? Yeah. So great question. Well, again, I worked for 20 years helping, uh, you know, first again, back in the very difficult economic times of the eighties with a lot of turns, turnarounds and, um, uh, you know, re-engineering type projects, that sort of thing survived to thrive. Then in the 90s, actually, we saw what was known as the renaissance of American steel. So I actually helped start up about a dozen new steel companies. And then from there, once I finished my dissertation after 10 years, I then continued. And like I said, I always pretty much continue to work with heavy industry clients, but then intentionally got into other type of industries that were experiencing lots of change. So for example, healthcare, which, you know, again, more important now than ever. Um, high tech, again, always, uh, you know, technology companies always uh, rapidly evolving, focus on a lot of change and some other ones. So, so fast forward uh, 20 years to the global economic meltdown of 2009. And so in 2009 is when I created this concept of change intelligence, as you, you know, your IQ, right? You've heard of EQ, emotional intelligence, what's your CQ, change intelligence. And why did I do that? Well, I you know, noted, and, and we talk a lot about in my field, the high failure rate of change, right? As I always say, we're highly experienced with change. We're not highly experienced with change done right from uh, whether it's, again, whether it's uh, starting up a new facility, trying to turn a facility around, implementing an IT initiative, trying to launch a new project, a product, trying to expand your business, whatever it is, there's, you know, there's a high failure rate of change. And even if it's not outright failures, you know, people have a sense that change is hard, that changes maybe sub-optimizes. It doesn't achieve all the ambitious goals that we have for them, right? So there's a high failure rate of change. So, and of course, during the, you know, economic, meltdown in the you know housing market and the, and the banking industry, uh, there was a lot of business failures. It was a very challenging time. So I knew I needed to invent better, smarter tools to help lead myself and my clients through all these changes. And so I recognized two things. One, that there was a gap in, again, we're focusing so much on change management, right? and project management and strategic planning, all that sort of things. What we really needed to do is to focus on change leadership, really leading change, not just managing it. Managing is, you know, kind of focuses on control, and uh, which is great. We need a plan, but all change is iterative, right? And, and all change is, you know, based on one human changing at a time. So it's an emotional journey. So we need more 
tools and skills and how to lead change. That was one gap I saw. The second gap I saw was that we have a lot of models and methods tools to develop various leadership capabilities. So we have the strength finders and the disc and the Myers Briggs, which helps us understand our overall change leaders or our leadership style, right? How do we lead? How do we work? Right. And we have tools to help understand other type of leadership capabilities. For example, how to, you know, the EQI to measure our emotional intelligence and try to develop it, the Thomas Kilman, which helps us understand our conflict management style, how to develop. But I didn't see any tools on the marketplace to help us diagnose and develop our ability to lead change. We have resiliency assessments, stress management assessments, innovation style assessments, change style assessments, right? But those are geared towards the targets of change, people impacted by the change, not those who are leading change. And again, I believe it's incumbent upon all of us to lead change, regardless of tenure, title, or role. So so that's why I created the CQ system for developing change intelligence to fill those gaps, to fill the gap in, you know, augment and supplement all our change management tools with a focus on change leadership and augment and supplement and extend all our leadership development tools with this important capability. So that's that's why and when I created Change Intelligence, again, I went down this path about 2009, did a lot of development work with clients, on pilot testing, beta testing, published my book um, on Change Intelligence and the Change Intelligence Assessment um, in 2013. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the backstory about that. Happy to elaborate on what it is, but I thought it was important to have that, have that context. Listening to the Empowering Women Podcast, a production of the Empowering Women in Industry organization. You can listen to this episode again and all our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and via a web browser at empoweringwomenpodcast.com. If you enjoy the Empowering Women Podcast, please consider sharing it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. These steps go a long way toward helping us continue to provide free resources for empowering women. Thank you. I'd like to go a little bit deeper into the assessment. Could you tell us about some of these groupings of types? So kind of the types of change leaders that are out there and what those types imply? Sure. Well, the definition of change intelligence is the awareness of our style of leading change and the ability to adapt our style over um, across people and situations. So the awareness of our style of leading change and the ability to adapt our style. So it's two different parts to it. So what are those different styles? Like you just said, well, I've distinguished over the course of my career that, that people tend to lead change from three different focus areas, that any change needs, as I say, a head, hard hands, and any change need, leader needs to focus on head, hard hands. So for example, any change needs head. That's the vision and the purpose. It needs, it needs a, um, an inspiring or, 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 or a logical or a, a winning purpose, right? What's, what's the goal? What's the vision? Why are we doing this, right? 
um, it, it needs that focus. That's the head of change. And so any change leader, one style is the folks who really like to focus on that. To get from here to there, any change needs and affects the hands. It needs a plan. It needs process. The people need tools and training to get from here to there. And any change needs engaged people. So we need the people because what is change? One person changing their behavior at a time to, to make it happen. So we need um, we need to focus on the people. We need to collaborate, communicate, coordinate. And so different change leaders, right? Different of us, we tend to have a preference to focus on the head, the vision, the strategy, the, the, the hands, the process, the plan, the tools, getting it done, or the people, the, the heart of change, um, you know, engaging, collaborating. So those are the three main styles of leading change, leading from the head, heart, and the hands. Now, just like all of us have a head and a heart, and most of us have two hands, we can do any of those things, and we do do all those things. So it's not either or. We're all a combination of all those styles. It's just that, you know, most of us tend to have one preference or some two, some a combination of all three. And when you put those three together, there's actually seven different styles of leading change. That might be a little beyond the scope of the time we have today, but I'm happy to dive in more with leading from the hard head or hands. And that might be interesting for the listeners because they can begin to self-diagnose and then, uh, you know, talk a bit about, again, what the awareness of our style is and then how to adapt to be optimally effective. I think we should go a little deeper into that. So if you pick up a copy of Barbara's book, Change Intelligence, it will come with a code to take an assessment to learn your style. And so I took the assessment and mine came back as visionary, which is uh, primarily what, what you call the sort of head strength. But you know, everybody's got different strengths and they play roles on, on teams. So I'd just love if you would go a little bit deeper into some of the different strengths, but also what people need to be aware of and the, the implications of, of these styles on teams. Sure. Absolutely, Mel. Well, start with your style. <laughs> so people who, when you, when you take the assessment, it's online, it just takes about 15 minutes. You can as you just said, a code comes with my book. You can people could reach out to me and, and ask for more information about it. Also, it's also a standalone instrument. Um, but when you complete the assessment, you get a score. You get a head score, a heart score, and a hand score. And so, folks like you, Mel, who score decidedly higher on the head, that's the visionary style, as I say. So, what are the strengths of a visionary? Because this is a strength-based model, and every style is a strength. Well, the strength of a visionary is that you love to look out, you know, to the future lift your head up, look into what's happening, what are the trends and the tools and the technologies in our environment, look at different industries, um, see what's happening out there in the world. You tend to be the most change friendly, right? Because you tend to see the positive benefits of the change, get excited about the change, want to you know, continually change, want to bring change back to your organization. You thrive on it. Um, so therefore, again, it tends to be the most change friendly, change ready, open to change. Um, uh, very strategic, very, very big picture kind of systems thinker, right? So those are all strengths. Those are all decided strengths. Um, we need, uh, especially in these times of significant dis disruption, we need folks who love to lift their heads up out of the muck and mire of today and look at brighter futures, right? And, and, and want to set the direction for how we strategically get from here to there. So those are strengths. However, 
any strength overdone is maybe not so much a strength anymore. So based on that, that you were just sharing about your style, Mel, uh, which what of that can you really resonate with and kind of embrace and own? And how do you know that sometimes perhaps that becomes an overdone strength and maybe uh, makes you not as effective as you might be in certain situations? Oh, gosh. Um, I am going to have to guess that uh, sometimes sometimes a visionary person might push people uh, with their vision that they're not ready for, or they may not put enough framework around it for other people who like to do more planning. Yeah, that's fantastic. Again, and what you what you just did is you hit on both an overdone strength as well as a blind spot, right? So sometimes one of the biggest frustrations I hear from my high head visionary change leaders is why don't they see the gold in what I'm giving them? It's so clear (laughs) to high head folks, right? Why we need to get on the train, right? To, you know, charge into this exciting vision of the future. It's so obvious to them. However, it might not be as obvious to everyone else, right? So, um, So an overdone strength can be sometimes that they're on the train, the training's leaving the station, right? But, you know, nobody else is on board with them, right? Because they, again, they haven't maybe taken the time to really communicate in a way that doesn't just excite them about the exciting what and why the change, but really engages the people, right? And connects with them and, and, and understands their hopes and deals with their concerns. On the other side, sometimes they can be very inspirational in painting this exciting picture of the future. So people get on the train, but then sometimes the train derails because of the other thing you mentioned is the lack of a plan and process, how to get from here to there. So that's an example of, again, strength, but you know, overdoing it and then also not seeing your blind spot, right? And this, not seeing your blind spot because that would be something else to, and then I'll talk about the other styles, but just to take a step back, One of the things we know, again, I'm a psychologist by training, and this might be very interesting, empowering information for people listening. If you haven't studied the neuroscience of change and the neuroscience of leadership is really fascinating. So what happens when neuroscientists put electrodes on people's brains and introduce them to a change? The same neuroreceptors fire when we're introduced to a change as when we feel physical pain. So in a very real sense to our brain, change equals pain. I think that alone is incredibly empowering because just think about when everything that we've been dealing with these, you know, the last several months, right? Or, you know, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, we're still very uh, close to the outbreak of the pandemic and a lot of other things, challenging things, you know, going on in our, in our world and our workplaces at this time. And so all the, you know, what that's done to our brains, right? You know, again, if change in general is pain, all these constant changes and the 24-7 coverage of them, you know, again, very, very threatening to our brains. And what happens when we get in the fear threat mode? Well, what happens is that all the good stuff that feeds our brain, the oxygen, the glucose gets sucked down past our necks so we can fight, flight, or freeze. So in a very real sense, change makes us dumber. Change makes us dumber. Just when we need all our cognitive resources, all our smarts to to not just cope and survive all these changes, but to have the creative responses that we really need to, again, to pivot and to think of radically new ways of living and working in these unprecedented times, 
just when we need all that oxygen, glucose, all our cognitive resources, they go away, right? Change literally makes us dumber. So I always say that in the stress of change, when our IQ goes down, building our CQ is like putting our own oxygen mask back on first. We breathe, we separate our knee jerk, often unhelpful reactions for more, for more leaderly responses. We remember we have options and the more options we have, the more power we have. The more options we have, the more power we have. So high head change leaders, right, in the midst of this pandemic and in stress of change in general, again, so often their frustration is, why don't they see the gold in what I'm giving them? Once they become aware of that and they're aware of their change intelligence and they're aware that this is a very common dynamic that folks of their style tend to see in others, right? I always say what looks like resistance is really a powerful source of information that we can use as change leaders to change the only thing we can with, with which is ourselves, to reframe what looks like resistance from our enemy to our ally. And so when high head change leaders, visionaries are seeing, perceiving this, re- what looks like resistance in others, you know, I don't get it. Why are you asking me to do this? Why are you trying to go so quickly, right? And this doesn't make sense to me. They can see their blind spot and they can put their own oxygen mask back on. They can breathe and they can remember that they have options. Oh, maybe I need to pull this other tool out of my tool bag. Maybe I need just not to lead the head, but to lead the hands. Maybe I need to slow down and give people the plan and the process and tools. Oh, maybe what I need to do is pull out my heart tool. Maybe I need to slow down and engage and communicate and meet with people one-on-one or have a town hall or do a pulse survey or, or engage them not just in after-the-fact buy-in, but proactive build-in so that we really own it together. So anyway, that's just a little more context in terms of the fact that, yes, this is all strength-based model, um, but sometimes in the stress of change, what do we do? We over-index on our strengths. We go there and we, and we, other people perceive us as pushing and forcing because we're just doing our strength. We're just communicating in a way that engages us in this case, in the high head folks, the what exciting vision, the what and the why the change. And we drop out, right? We neglect what might engage others in this case, either again, equipping the hands or, or, you know, communicating, collaborating. So anyway, I just wanted to provide that that additional context before I maybe talk about the other styles. Yeah, let's let's talk about the other styles and then I'd like to hear more about proactive building. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, you know, the, there's the old adage that people don't resist change, they resist being changed. And so, um, you know, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who back in the day, she wrote Change Masters, which is a classic. She's another Harvard guru. She says that change is threatening when done to us, exhilarating when done by us. Change is threatening when done to us, exhilarating when done by us. And so, so often what we do is we focus on getting buy-in after the fact, right? We have a change that's designed. um, The train is leaving the station. And all of a sudden, we communicated about it, and we sent an email or a quick reference guide, or um, you know, do some kind of flashy town hall with a PowerPoint and let's see video or whatever, right? And we're trying to get people to get on board and buy in after the fact. 
what, you know, I focused on back in the day, social technical systems theory, jointly optimizing not just the technical system, but the social system, right? And design theory, right? Which is very popular these days, but has actually been around for decades. One of the beauties of, of design thinking and, you know, operating in a design thinking way is that that's what we're doing right from the beginning. We're designing for purpose. We're designing collaboratively. We're working with the first part of design thinking is actually empathy, empathy, understanding the worldviews and the preferences and the goals and the hopes and the fears of, of other people and, um, and actually inventing together, designing together. So often I think what looks like resistance in others, again, is that they don't get it, which is the head. They don't want it, which is the heart, and they just can't do it, with, which is the hands. But if we involve people, if we engage them in iterative, agile design process right from the beginning, then we can incorporate, all, we, can, we can invent it together. And participation, uh, one maximum of leading change is that participation not only leads to better quality decisions and designs, it leads to greater ownership and commitment. You get, you get true commitment, not mere compliance. I think we should go more into that, in particular, what it looks like so that a listener could get a couple of pointers on if they're helping a team move through some kind of of change, what does it look like to do it effectively? And as you said, we're recording this in the midst of the pandemic, and people are dealing with all kinds of changes right now. So Talk to us about, you know, some of the practical aspects of implementation and also maybe what you're seeing in the midst of the pandemic and businesses needing to adjust. Right. Okay. So let me dive into the other two main styles of leading change as a way to answer that question. We talked about leading from the head. Another style is leading from the hands, right? And so the hands is leading the hands is all about the plan, the process, the tools, um, removing barriers, really helping people get from here to there. And why that's so critical in a situation like a crisis is because any leader's job, the first 90 days of the crisis should be to help people prioritize. It's been said that leadership is the art of focusing attention. And we really need to understand what are our priorities now? What do we need to do boots in the ground? Again, it's great to look up and we need to do that to look at the future and what you know the visionary possibilities could be. And we need to retool and we need to get work done right now to survive and thrive. So that's all about helping the hands. So those are some very practical things that that any leader can do is what do I need to do to, to equip my team to make this happen? So another thing that leading from the hands really does, and again, even if this isn't our natural normal style, even if our strength really isn't, you know, the planning, the process, the being very detail oriented and laying things out, if that's not really our strength, any of us can do this, right? We can do any of these styles and, um, and any change or any leading through crisis needs us to do this. One quote I love that I saw in the beginning of this crisis was by Patrick Leccioni. He wrote The Five Dysfunctions of Teams, another great resource for marshalling your team together. And what he says in that time of crisis, people don't need to be instructed, they need to be reminded. People don't need to be instructed, they need to be reminded. It's really a great time to go back to basics. And so, you know, I, I love a quote by Vince Lombardi, right? He was the um, iconic coach of the Packers football team. And what he said to get his team through a losing crisis, 
he's famous for saying, gentlemen, this is a football. Gentlemen, this is a football. So really getting back to basics. And that's a great way actually to combine the head and the hands, the head and the hands. That's actually the, you know, one of the styles of leading change is the combination of those two. And that's the driver style. And one of the beauties of leading through that style in times of crisis that, again, any of us can, can do at any time is really to hook and hinge what we're in business for. So why are we here? What's our vision? What's our mission? What's our values? And hook and hinge that to kind of retelling our story, our hero's journey through this crisis, not, not spin, but rousing story, telling the story that shows, again, you know, you can focus on the big picture, the, the company, the organizational level. And obviously for some organizations like in the healthcare industry or first responders or any of the frontline workers that are really helping, you know, keep the lights on and keep us getting our groceries and our deliveries and all that, you can see that inspiring purpose. But, you know, for any organization and any leader, really what, you know, how can we help people see the line of sight between what we're asking them to do today and their one, their two, their three priorities, like really tactically, really specifically, and why it matters, right? So both the what and the why and framing what you're asking people to do and what we're inventing doing together to the meeting behind it. So again, that, that's a kind of a great way to think about leading both the hands, right? You know, tactically, boots on the ground through this crisis and also continuing to inspire and get, you know, enlighten leading the head, kind of the small picture and the big picture. So finally, the heart. I've not met any leader through this crisis who, even if, you know, the, focusing on the people and as some leaders have told me, especially in my traditional heavy industry clients, I hate the F word, right? The feeling word has not led from the heart much more than any time in their careers because fundamentally the crises that we're experiencing is testing our common humanity, right? It's really cutting to the core of our common humanity. Change at any time is an emotional journey. And so we all know that so often we can have the smartest change, the most logical process, you know, the clearest vision makes all the sense in the world. But if we don't have the people behind it, it's going to fail. And of course, in this time of crisis where it's not just our organizations, our businesses, our livelihood. It's also our families and our friends and our health. It's everything that makes us human. So leading the heart, right, is so important. And, and so a great example of that and a tactical specific thing that anybody listening can, can do in times of crisis or times of change is just when we're so rightly focused on our physical safety right now, our psychological safety on our team should be our dual focus. So psychological safety. So research by Amy Edmonston and her colleagues at Harvard and also research by Google demonstrated the same thing. And that is that the number one factor that separates high performance teams from the rest is psychological safety. It's not how it's the IQ of the people, it's not the diversity, it's not so many different variables that you think would account for that. It's what they call psychological safety. And how do they define that? It's kind of like trust. It's the that people on the team feel comfortable and confident that they can say what needs to be said, that they can speak their truth, which 
uh, without fear of repercussion, without being vilified, that they will be heard, that they will be listened to. Not that everybody agrees with everyone else, not that it's, uh, you know, Pollyannish, right? But they have that sense of psychological safety on their teams. And what's the number one way that the research shows to build psychological safety on your teams? It's by sharing challenges, sharing challenges. And what better time to invite Every individual on your team, starting with yourself, showing that vulnerability, demonstrating that, then this time of crisis to share our challenges with each other. That is so important, creating that sense of psychological safety during a crisis as well as beyond. Why? Because I believe that one of the biggest failure factors of change is that people don't get their voices heard. What you see depends on where you sit. What you see depends on where you sit. And what change looks like at the C-suite is very different than what it looks like on the front lines. And we need to hear all the different voices and all the different levels, all the different functional groups, all our geographies in order to lead change that's going to stick. And so, again, the more that right now we can, you know, as they say, never let a good crisis go un unused, right? If we can capitalize on this opportunity to build psychological safety, build trust on our team, build those relationships, that is going to hold. That's what's really going to cause us to build that change capability for the long term, that change capability, not just to get through this crisis, but to help lead all the inevitable changes to come. As I always say, relationships get results. Relationships get results. As Stephen Covey used to say back in the day. In the seven habits of highly effective teams, he said that building relationships with others is like putting a deposit in your emotional bank account with them. Because at some point, you're going to need to make a withdrawal. At some point, you're going to need to make a withdrawal. And definitely in times of change and times of crisis, we're going to be asking a lot of hard things for our people. And the more we can lay that enabling foundation, we're going to be leading through this crisis a lot more collaboratively. And we're going to also be building capability in ourselves and our teams and our organizations for the long term. Thank you for joining us here in Season 2, Episode 12 of the Empowering Women Podcast. You can learn more about Barbara Troutline's book and her work at changecatalysts.com. And that's catalyst with an S at the end. I love hearing from you, dear listeners. If you'd like to get in touch with me to provide feedback or suggest a guest or to get on my mailing list, please visit melltheengineer.com. That's melltheengineer.com. just a little story and get your thoughts. So I worked for a company, a big company, and they they pushed a change down that impacted all the offices. And without going into too much detail, I'll just say that they changed our physical spaces. And um, 
they told us they were doing it for a reason around, you know, collaboration and that sort of thing. But most of us believe that the change was actually driven by money, um, which is not inherently a bad thing. And I really struggled as the low person on the totem pole with the change. And I always wondered why leadership didn't take an approach of collaborating with their staff. They have all these uh, highly skilled, intelligent, highly paid staff members. You know, so I, I guess I'm posing the question to you of could could leadership take an approach uh, in this type of situation where you need to cut costs somewhere? Could you go to your team members and say, we need to save this money. We need to cut costs. This is one way we're considering doing it, but we'd like to open up, you know, the floor for suggestions on other ways that we could achieve this. Is that an effective way to go or is there a better approach that leadership needs to think about when they're pushing out a wide change? Yeah, absolutely. What you're getting at is some of the essence of design thinking that it's, uh, it, it's again, that was my all about my early career, right? Kind of transforming the paradigms. And it was often hardest to transform the paradigms of the senior leaders. Do you get to that level because you've made smart decisions and, and, and you've been able to, you know, uh, drive your ideas to, to get results. And, and, and yet at the same time, you get to that level and, and there's frustration because why aren't people following behind me? One CEO said to me once, he's like, Barbara, we're all monkeys in a tree. We're all monkeys in a tree. And I'm the top monkey. And I look down and I see the smiling faces of the monkeys below me. And they look up and what do they see? And he patted his rear end. (laughs) And, you know, and we know that the higher up you go in any organization, the harder it is to get any feedback at all, let alone real time and actionable feedback, right? And so even in organizations where, you know, the senior leaders are very open and amenable to feedback and, and they want it and they want the input. It can be very challenging, right? If you haven't created that sense of psychological safety, right? Even if you haven't shown that vulnerability and openness to the change, to the ideas, if you haven't built that trust to get it. So, so that, that's one thing. The other thing is, do we have the systems and processes in place to bubble up that feedback? You can have great intentions, but do you really have the systems and the processes in place to gather that input from people, right? You know, again, not reactively after the fact, but to design together, right? Not a lot of our organizations really have those kind of structures in place. So we have really good intentions sometimes, but in the stress of change, what do we do? We go to our default <laughs> in that case, you know, creating the vision and, you know, and expecting to people to get on board versus having it kind of be in the fabric of how we do business here, that we have these kind of participative design processes where we do treat people like adults versus that top-down parent-child that we say, this is the, the business case. This is why we need to save money, Right. And like you said, you know, maybe these are some options we're considering, or maybe we don't even start there. Maybe we say this is what we need to do and why we need, we think we need to do it and then unleash the ideas from there. That was one thing from, you know, very early in my career that, you know, I saw right from the beginning is just that, for example, one gentleman 
that worked on a pickle line in the steel mill in bankruptcy, right? The pickle line was the first production area. And it, it, it was just amazing because this gentleman who worked on the pickle line, they, they never even shared information between the different shifts. So he hardly knew the, the people that he was relieving or who was relieving him, which was the same people for a couple decades, nor did he have any opportunity or chance or time to talk to the folks in the tandem mill, which was the next production area, um, let alone any kind of um, even information sharing meetings other than periodic, uh, 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 you know, kind of team meeting with his direct superior. And that was very rare. So it's just so uh, I'll never forget when, you know, the first day that we had our, our first session together, he said that that was the first time in his 20 year career that anyone asked him for his opinion. And it was just amazing just to see the energy that was unleashed by people who, again, we know our jobs the best. We know what you see depends on where you sit. We know boots on the ground, what the opportunities for cost savings are. We know why certain configurations of how we set up our uh, physical space and work environment are going to work better than others. We have access to this data because what you see depends on where you sit. So, so I know I've said a lot of things there, but you know, my bottom line answer to your question is yes. <laughs> that yes, um, that's that's what a participative approach to leading change will enable you to do is really get the you know the whole system together. Maybe that in a large organization that that's not completely possible. But then you know, iterative design processes. There's so many variants on that to really get, you know, get people's voices heard. So to your point, it's not resisted. It's not reactionary buy-in. It's not frustration by any level. It's proactive building. The one other thing I would say, getting back to the two things I started with, that I think the two, two of the biggest change leadership capabilities are courage and empathy. So again, it takes a lot of courage, I think, by senior leaders to admit they don't know everything, right? And they need and want input from others. And it takes a lot of courage, even with the most enlightened leadership, for people to speak their truth and say what they say what they say what needs to be said and say what they see. And it also takes a lot of empathy. It takes a lot of empathy. I think that we talk about, you know, uh, building emotional intelligence in our leaders and they need tools to engage and et cetera. I think we have a lot of responsibility, regardless of whether in the C or in the C-suite or not, to engage ourselves. To It's not something the organization does to us, create an engaged work environment necessarily. There's, there's something incumbent on each one of us to engage and give our all. And empathy. Empathy is so important because people might not realize this, but the imposter syndrome is pretty rampant the higher up you go in organization. The imposter syndrome is when people perceive that they got to a certain level but or, or they got a certain job or role, but they're really imposters, that they really question whether they're going to be successful, whether they can be successful, whether they have what it takes to make it. And there's a lot of folks who are in, you know, again, especially senior leader positions who, who question that, who have that imposter syndrome. And so sometimes what looks like arrogance or top-down decision-making or lack of engagement or participation, it can be fear, right? Can be fear, especially in this time of global crisis. Nobody got the dance card for what to do. Nobody got the instruction manual to how to lead through this. And if you haven't built already that, 
you know, that ability to, you know, share your story, be a strong leader, and at the same time, a vulnerable leader and an empathetic leader, an engaging leader, that's going to be uh, even more difficult for folks right now. Warren Buffett has this great quote that said that it's only when the tide goes out, can you see who's been swimming naked? And, um, and so not, yeah, so not every organization, not every leader is going to make it through this, right? Unfortunately, if they haven't, you know, built that, that foundation already. And again, any crisis, any change is an opportunity to build the plane while you're flying it, build the plane while you're flying it. This is a great opportunity. If we haven't already, it's a great opportunity to build an even stronger foundation, right? If we already have it, it's also a great opportunity, even if, we don't have a very agile or resilient or change capable organization to start right now exactly where we're at. Well, Barbara, this has been such a wonderful conversation and I've learned so much about change intelligence. I've just got a couple last questions. What is upcoming on the horizon for you and your work? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, well, you know, as I said, it's it's it, being in an interesting position, looking back on my career, um, you know, now 31 years into it, and then starting off as the, you know, the girl who steel workers say they won't listen to, to, um, uh, to now being, uh, you know, in the position that I am. And I think it's interesting to, to think about, you know, one's legacy and how can one really, you know, pay it forward and, and equip and empower the, the next generations of leaders coming. And so I was really thrilled and honored to be nominated as, you know, for mentor of the year for you know, the empowering women in industry event. And that was, it just, it was really, it was really moving. You know, a woman who uh, yeah, I had uh, graduated from my change intelligence certification program and I had coached really looked at me as a mentor. And after so I got nominated for the award, just the appreciation and the praise that, you know, people share through social media it was just really moving. So I guess what's next for me is that I'm just really interested in how to, and I would say that that's, that's the way that I would put it, you know, really equip and empower, mentor women and men uh, th that are coming up. Because again, all my focus is on leading change. And there's obviously so much change, so much crisis going on in our world right now. We all need to step up uh, to be change leaders. And it's, you know, just, just very exciting to think about the possibilities of uh, mentoring people to get their voices heard, share their smart thinking and come together to, to collaborate for, you know, win-win versus, you know, kind of us, them. We hear a lot about divisiveness things that separate us. I think there's so much that we have together in our common humanity. So what's next for me, I, I just like to be part of that solution and part of that solution, do just that. So, so thank you for asking. It's a, it's a provocative question to reflect upon. And then don't you have another book that's coming out? Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking about that as well. Um, I was invited by Barrett Kohler to write book two. Um, CQ2. <laughs> and I'm uh, very excited about that. I was very honored to be asked. And what we're all really excited about, the editor and myself, are the possibility of having this second book be more research-based, talk about the research, change intelligent research. Because as I mentioned, there's now a database of almost 14,000 change leaders around the world that have completed this, this change intelligence assessment. And also, in addition to that, um, conducting ROI analyses on what what really is the bottom line impact that 
that people, teams, and organizations obtain from building their change intelligence. What is it? You know, what's the either the financial bottom line impact or whatever metrics might be important to the organization that brought me in the first place? And also, what are those changes in leadership behaviors? So the mindsets and behaviors of the leaders themselves, and also, you know, the perceptions of their, you know, colleagues in terms of their ability to collaborate. So actively doing that research now, because I would really like the book to be not just about the, you know, the CQ assessment database, which does have some really interesting actionable implications, uh, because there's some interesting differences about leading change across levels um, in different groups. Um, but also, I'd really like to have this, you know, objective third-party research that really that really demonstrates how building change intelligence helps build an enabling foundation to lead through change and now through crisis. So the book got pushed back a little bit because of, actually the researcher is, um, you know, kind of opening up some of the cases again to really study not just the initial change that an organization brought in change intelligence for. So whether it's a culture change or you know implementing a new you know, business process or IT system or helping facilitate a merger acquisition, uh, but now how it's, you know, helped these organizations lead through the COVID crisis, for example, it's going to be very interesting to collect some data about. So, so thanks for asking. And, um, you know, I don't know if the book will be on 2021, uh, but definitely hoping for 2022. Where can our listeners find you to follow along with your work? Absolutely. So my website is changecatalyst.com. So change catalyst with an S. You can go to my website and download two free chapters of my book. There's also downloadable case studies, um, research reports, there's keynote speech I did, there's webinar, there's podcasts, etc. So there's a lot of free information just right on my website. I post a lot on LinkedIn, Barbara Troutline, and on Twitter. And, and I'm very accessible. I mean, if people link in with me, if they email me, if they call me, I'm, uh, I'm very accessible. So lots of opportunities there. And of course, you can go on Amazon and, uh, or wherever fine books are sold and, and you can get your copy of Change Intelligence, my book. Excellent. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mel. That's our show today. Thanks again for joining us for this discussion with Barbara Troutline. You can find more about Barbara's work at changecatalysts.com. That's changecatalysts with an S at the end, dot com. All right, and then a quick reminder that Charlie has decided to open up a post-Empowering Women in Industry conference pass for the recorded sessions. So if you'd like to get access at a reduced rate because you couldn't join the live conference, visit empoweringwomeninindustry.com, navigate to the national event, and there you'll find registration for accessing the recorded sessions. Thanks again for joining us. We sincerely appreciate you listeners, and we especially appreciate when you take a moment to share the podcast. It's not hard, right? It just takes an extra minute, maybe a couple extra clicks or taps on the phone to share the podcast with a friend, share it on social media, or leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again for doing that, and we look forward to continually serving you. Thank you, and if you'd like to get in touch with me directly, visit meltheengineer.com. Thanks again, and until next time.
Thank you for joining us for an episode of the Empowering Women Podcast with Mel the Engineer. If you find the Empowering Women Podcast helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Our show is a partnership between Mel the Engineer and the Empowering Women in Industry Organization. Learn more by visiting empoweringwomenpodcast.com. Thank you.